Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 8. In our Advent series, we're going through a few psalms that, that talk about Jesus or, or point to Jesus kind of on our Advent meditations. And so you can turn to Psalm 8 if, you, if you're uh, jumping on your phone or iPad or something I am, and you want to follow along with the same version I'm in. I'm in, I'm in the NIV today. And so as you're turning there, you're finding uh, Psalm 8. Let me just remind everybody that in a few weeks, uh, three weeks from today is Christmas Eve. And so just go ahead and make a note in your calendar. If you'll be in town and you're planning to worship with us, we are not going to have a Sunday morning service. We'll just have an evening service at 5.30. And so it'll be kind of the Christmas Eve, you know, candlelight service where, where we do that. Kids uh, are will be in here with us the whole time. It'll be a lot of fun. And so panics don't uh, parents, don't, don't panic. It's going to be a shortened service. Uh, kids are more than welcome. We will not give children f- uh, candles f- with a flame on it. Okay, we have, a, we have a backup plan for kiddos. And so Christmas Eve, 530 right here. We'd love to, love to have you all, everybody here, if you're going to be in town. Um, I kind of found it's interesting. A lot of places, like, people travel. But when you live in Asheville, everybody wants to come see family here for Christmas, which is great. So bring your family. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, 5.30. Hey, let me, let me pray for us today, and then we will uh, jump into the sermon. Jesus, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that, that as, as we open it here, uh, people 2,000 years later across continents and languages um, from when you walked the earth, uh, that the, the, the Psalms, the prayer book of your people for, for generations and thousands of years, as we open it today, it's just as powerful and true and real as it was then. So, so let it be that to us today. Give us eyes to see how you're working. Give us ears to hear you and give us hearts open uh, to love you more and to follow you more deeply. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we continue our, our uh, Advent meditations in the Psalms, uh, looking at Jesus, just by way of reminder, the word Advent itself means just appearing. And so uh, traditionally for, for you know, over a hundred or a, over a thousand years, close to 1,500 years, the church at large has been following a, a calendar uh, that doesn't go along the calendar year, like starting in January, but it actually starts with Advent because the appearing of Jesus, uh, we believe, changed everything, right? And so, so the church calendar, the appearing of Jesus, it's a time where uh, the people of God prepare their hearts and, and they just kind of ask the question, Jesus, what's something new that you're showing me? What's something new that you're telling me? What's a fresh way for me to follow you and, and, and join you in the life that you're calling me into? Uh, so that's what we're doing now. It's, that's why we're doing the Psalms is because since before Jesus came, for hundreds of years before Jesus came, uh, the book of Psalms was like the prayer book or the hymn book of the people of God that they would turn to. And throughout the Psalms, there, there are Psalms that kind of pointed towards and talked about the coming Messiah, God's chosen one who would come and redeem his people from, from all forms of slavery that they encounter. And so today as we look at Psalm 8, I wanted to kind of uh, start with the question, uh, what does every Christmas story have in common? Every Christmas story have in common, from, from Rudolph to the Grinch to Ralphie and his BB gun to the story that we read about in the New Testament, the Gospels, every single Christmas story drips with irony, right? Rudolph knows the thing that made him the outcast was the thing that ended up making him a hero. 
The Grinch hated Christmas and he stole it, but it was in coming to love Christmas that he returned it, right? Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it yet, it's your fault for not turning on TBS on Christmas Day, but we all know what happens with Ralphie and his BB gun, right? <laughs> right? It all happens. And, and today, as we look at Psalm 8, it's a psalm that does not directly talk about the Messiah, which we know as Jesus, but it's a psalm that definitely uh, kind of points towards and kind of indirectly talks about Jesus. It's a psalm, one of the few psalms in all 150 that actually speaks directly to God. And so as we open it today, we're going to talk about two ironies that this psalm gives us as we kind of think about Christmas and Advent and the story of Jesus coming. Uh, the first one is an irony of praise, and the second is the irony of people. So it's the irony of praise and the irony of people. Let me, let me read the nine verses for us, and then we'll jump into the message today. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? And human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels, crowned them with glory and honor. You made the rulers over the work, you made them rulers over the works of your hands, and you put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and all the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name! And all the earth. And so, so let's look at the idea of praise, why we praise, and then we'll kind of get into the irony of it, and then we'll look into the irony of people. So, so praise is something that we do. So, whether it's singing songs, whether it's meditating in our hearts, whether it's offering something back to God, uh, praise and worship is just responding to how God has revealed Himself. That's what worship at its core is it's, it's God revealing and us. Responding. It's something that we get to do because God first took the initiative to let us know out of his love who he is and what he's up to in the world. And so, so here, here, here's the thing about praise is that praise, we see from the psalm, is as high as the heavens, which raises a good question. How high are the heavens? How high are the heavens? Have you, have you taken any time lately to think about how big creation is. Have you thought about that lately? One of my favorite things about one of the most redeeming things, I, I don't love the short days. I like cold weather. I don't love the short days. But one of the most redeeming factors is because we live in a house with three she-cubs under the age of five, we're normally in bed between 8.30 and 9 o'clock, which means in the summertime, we just don't see the stars. Like night doesn't exist to us, but this time of year it does. And one of my girl's favorite things to do is to wrap up in blankets this time of the year and walk out and it's like, they think it's like midnight, but it's six o'clock. You know, like we've already eaten dinner and done the dishes and baths. And we're like, what do we do for another hour or two, you know? And so we walk outside and look at the stars. We get to walk outside and see it. Um, the problem, most of us, we, most of our life is controlled by a device that we hold in our hands. And, and that becomes the center of our universe. So we often live with head down or seated, seated down looking at a screen. But, but when we take a second to look back and think about how high the heavens are, let's, let's look at this photo. Can we throw that, that picture up? Are the slides working? May not be working today. 
We don't know. Okay, not y'all's fault. Something's been going on. I had a picture of the Milky Way's core, okay? Trust me, it was really cool, all right? It was really good. In the Milky Way galaxy, let's just think about this. So, so, so one of the fun things about, hey, wow, okay. All right, so look at this. This is the Milky Way's core, not even the entire Milky Way galaxy. Okay, so, so the Milky Way, uh, one of the cool things about living where we live, and, and Anna and I grew up in the middle of nowhere, kind of higher up into the mountains, is on a real clear night, you can go out and you can see kind of a thick like band of stars, and you can see the Milky Way. That our our, our uh, solar system is a part of the Milky Way galaxy. And just in this picture, there's about 500,000 stars shining. Okay, so, so to put it in perspective, our sun is one star. There's about 500,000 stars shining right there. The, Milky, the entirety of the Milky Way galaxy is about 100,000 light years in diameter. I have no idea how to compare that to human miles. Does anybody in here know? Like I looked for like how many miles is, and all I could find was kilometers, and I was like, well, okay. That's, that's, I went to Bible college, guys. I'm like, I don't do math. I don't, I don't do that. But it's estimated that, listen to this, in the Milky, in, in our observable universe, so that's just, what we have been able at this point to create technology just to look at, okay? In our observable universe, there are between 200 billion and 200 trillion galaxies. Okay. The praise that God is due is as high at least as that. It's as high as looking at that and thinking that our God spoke a word and that happened. The God that that we call our heavenly Father set his glory there for us to observe. God's glory means his his like manifested tangible goodness to us humans and that he set that in the heavens for us to see and experience. So like God did not have to make an observable universe, right? Right? Like, God didn't have to make things beautiful. If we were just like robots that he created and designed and everything laid out perfectly and we had no say in the matter and we didn't need to experience beauty or goodness, everything could have just been two-dimensional, black and white, no senses in order to experience his goodness. But God chose to create everything and then look at us and say, here you go. Here you go, five hundred thousand stars that you get to put in a picture on a computer. God made it that way. He, he made it for us to enjoy his goodness. He made it possible for us to sense his greatness when we see that sunrise, when we see that sunset. It's ironic that the biggest thing that feels the biggest to us was something that God just kind of chose to work with, that he made it with his fingers. Cora and I, my five-year-old, she's recently gotten into Legos. And so we've been building Lego sets. And I was thinking about it this week preparing this message that was like compared scale-wise, me creating a little Lego house and God creating the entire universe that we can observe with huge telescopes that took us hundreds of years to, to create doesn't even compare 
right? In Isaiah, God said that he measured the heavens with just a hand breadth. See, God is a big God, and that's just an understatement. The praise that is due him is from all of creation. The stars obey him. He set them there to govern the night skies. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God initiated. He created us, and so we respond with praise. We respond with worship. So what's the irony of praise? That's the scale of praise. It's as high as the heaven. But here's the irony of praise. Is that it's as powerful as the vulnerable. Right? Look, look, at, look at verse 2. Through the praise of infants and children, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. So like when we think about the stars, when we see the picture of the, the Milky Way galaxy, all the stars shining as big as the heavens are, and God holds them in his hand. How would you think a God like this would choose to like have first priority in praise? Right? Because we see, we see images in the Bible of angels around a, th- a throne singing holy, holy, holy. And that's true, but that's a heavenly image. Right? We have words of great prophets and theologians over the course of generations that have devoted their lives to hear from God, to study his word and pass down knowledge and wisdom. And we read that stuff and it blows you away. If you've never read Abraham Joshua Heschel, a Jewish rabbi who reflects on God's goodness and, and his Sabbath for man, it'll blow just the way he writes will blow you away. And that's true, but that's to be expected from people who have devoted their lives to gather and glean and then share with us. But what we often don't expect is the way God chooses to show his goodness and glory to the world. And it says right here that he chose babies and infants to be his heralds, to to create a stronghold in the midst of his enemies. Anybody served in kids' ministry and a kid just says something that's just super true and you're like, wow, man, like, if you've been around kids or you have kids and they're hearing the things of God, and, and like sometimes they'll just say stuff and you're like, I wish I could say that on Sunday morning, you know? Because that's it. I should just give you a mic, let you say it, and we'd all just pray and be done with it, right? But, but, but we also know through the testimony of, of God's people and, and the, the truth of his word that God's always used the most vulnerable and the smallest to do the biggest things, I mean, God, the the nation of Israel, the entire nation and ethnic group that God chose to prove his goodness and to take his blessing into the whole world, when he chose them, he said, hey, I chose you, and it wasn't because you were a greater powerful nation, and it wasn't because you were rich or you had military influence or power or rich. I actually chose you because you were small and you were weak, but I loved you. And I chose you to prove my greatness to the entire world. And Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, and he said that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He said that God chose what is low and nothing to bring about his work so that no human can boast. Like think about David, the man after God's own heart, the youngest son who his own dad didn't even think him worthy of getting in the lineup. Like it hurts your feelings at recess when you, when you get picked last for the game. It hurts even worse when your own dad's like, hey, I don't know, just stay out there, man, like. Trust me, this is going to be embarrassing for you. But David was the one that God chose, anointed him king. God knew David's heart before he knew David's name. Mary was a betrothed woman 
who brought nothing to the table except for a contrite and humble heart. Ruth was a foreign-born widow who had nothing, traveled into an unknown country with her mother-in-law. You thought Thanksgiving was bad enough. And she was brought into the lineage of King David, and eventually Jesus descended from her, her lineage. Most of the disciples were losers. But that's how God works. And that's why Advent's so wonderful and it fits into this irony of praise is because here we are, human beings, and Jesus, the God of the universe, chose to set aside his glory and come down in human form. He was born as a helpless infant, exposed to the atrocities of racism and exile and genocide. He grew up in the vulnerabilities of a peasant life and was constantly being ridiculed and harassed by social, religious, and political elites. Notice it says that through the infants, the praise of infants and babies, that God will establish a stronghold against his enemies. Strong, there, there's, there's two ways that this can kind of be taken. One way is it's proof that if babies keep being born, that God's not done with the world. Right? Most of us, a lot of times in our culture, we think of babies as like kind of a like necessary evil or something we have to put up with. But in God's eyes, humans are the things that God chose to, to work through and in to redeem all of creation. As long as there are children around, God is not done with the earth. But there's also another way that we can look back and reflect on the life of Jesus, how this may fit. Jesus, we all know the story of Palm Sunday where Jesus was coming into the gates and people were laying down palm leaves in their jackets and they were praising Hosanna. But there's only one group of people that followed Jesus as he went all the way into the temple to teach on that Sunday. In, in Matthew 21, there were, there were children who were singing Hosanna to the son of David while Jesus was in the temple. A really, really vivid picture of the son returning to the father's home. And the ones who were praising him were children. It was enough for the adults to stop when he got to the gates of Jerusalem. They saw that he wasn't going to the armory and raising up a military like battalion to go overthrow the Roman Empire. He went to the temple, which would have made no sense to them because violence wasn't allowed there. The only ones who continued to worship and praise Jesus were children. And the other like, religious elites came to him and were like, Hey, Jesus, do you understand what's happening here? Like, these are kids. These are kids saying that. Because in their minds and in that culture, no like, self-respecting, serious rabbi who held any clout or weight would have let kids do that. In the eyes of the religious leaders, this was, this was scandal, scandalous because the testimony of children meant absolutely nothing. It would have been considered an embarrassment, not an endorsement. And when they asked Jesus, hey, have you, are you hearing what these kids are saying? He quotes this psalm back to those religious leaders. Because from the mouth of the vulnerable comes the most powerful praise. It's when we feel like we've got nothing left that often we find the one place that we should turn. Sometimes it takes having nothing to realize that God is everything and deserves our everything. Some of us are here today and we know that God is everything because we know what it's like to have nothing. Some of us here have felt the presence of God because we felt the absence of anyone else in our lives. See, God is the God of the brokenhearted and the oppressed. He's the God of the childless, the orphan and the widow, the Psalms say over and over, and the prophets remind us of. And then Jesus proved to be true. See, the sacrifice, the praise that God wants is a broken and contrite heart. It's the most powerful thing we can give him. And 
Sometimes it takes seeing the heavens and realizing how big God is. It takes looking at Jesus and seeing his life and hearing the words that he gave to us that call us into discipleship to realize that we bring nothing to the table. And and just as a little pastoral note, when we say things like bring nothing to the table, all humans are created uniquely and in God's image, and we have our own story and value. There's kind of, I think this may be getting in the weeds a little bit, but I just, I don't know, felt like needed to share this more. There's kind of this like puritanical, neo-reformed teaching that, that humans' kind of baseline identity is, is worthless. And while humans do bad things, that, that actually, go, that's, okay, so it's kind of that idea of total depravity has kind of interfered with the truth of Imago Dei and that God looked at humans and said, you are very good, okay? And so, so while we bring nothing to the table of eternal significance and being, dis, being able to save ourselves, we as humans are here because God loves us and he sees us worthy of sending his son to die for us to redeem us back to himself. See, everything we do here dies with us unless we do it working side by side with Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So who Jesus is, what he's done, how he is with us, and he'll never leave us or forsake us, being sealed with the Holy Spirit, made into the temple of the living God, is that a real enough vision for us to realize that we are infants compared to the greatness of God and that God wants our praise, that we are all children of God? We have an eight-month-old, and do you know what she offers to our house? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But here, I heard a few awes, because at the same time, I would do, I don't think, I don't expect her to do anything, right? I'm not doing the dishes at night, and I'm like, Lucy, come on, girl. Like, you got to pull your weight here. No, I know who she is. I know that she's a baby, and I have placed meaning on her because she's my daughter, and I love her. And I would do anything just to hear her say two syllables, dada. Like, I'm working on it all the time. I'm working on it. It's the best. I want that. And, and God knows, the psalm says that God knows our frame. He knows who we are. He knows what we're made of. He made us. And yet he comes and he puts his praise in the mouth of babies and infants to remind us of who we are and remind us of our significance in his eyes. God wants us to take a look at the life around us that he's revealed and catch that vision of God, you are good, and life with you is better than life without you. So I want to choose life with you. Set up a stronghold of praise in my life so that I can be like the babies and children that, you, that Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom on earth. And so it's a good time to kind of ask the question, like, so what about all this Christmas stuff? Like, the reality is that we live in a world that is broken, where people have done evil, terrible, monstrous things to one another. Like, how does the good news of great joy for all people come into play? Like, is it the decorations, the songs, the focus of, of Christmas time, the, the pausing, a sermon series in, Gala- in Colossians that's talking about Jesus to go through the Psalms? Like, is this worth it? Why didn't we just kind of keep on doing the same old same old. Like, and I think for us, catching that vision of life with God and a life serving with God 
and, and believing that we can have an experience with the living God, it, it may seem like a feeble attempt to disrupt the darkness that we feel, maybe even in our own souls. But I'm just going to say something plainly and see if it fans into flame any coals in our hearts today. That the God of the universe in Jesus came to earth to give his life and die so that the penalty for our sin, the penalty of God's anger of humans making a mess of his good, beautiful world would be satisfied so that we can know him and we can live forever in a loving union with him. That Jesus came and he died to pay for our sins and rose from the grave so that we can be with God forever. Man, that gospel, it can be told by children and it is the power from heaven to save. And our salvation came in the form of a child to earth. See, the Father is looking for those that will worship him, that will praise him in spirit and in truth. And he's looking for people to trust and obey him like children so that he can establish his stronghold among his enemies here. That's the irony of praise. Verses three through eight, here's the second irony. It's the irony of people. The irony of people. I'm not talking about hipsters. I'm not talking about people who are dressing like it's the 90s again, which is so weird to me. But why do, like, humans, what is it about us? Look, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels, crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the work of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Here's the first thing. The first irony is that we're small creatures with a great father. Like, what do, how do you answer that question in verse 4? What is mankind that God is mindful of us? Like, when you consider everything in verse 3, think about the stars, thinking about the universe, the bigness of it. Voyager 1 was about 4 billion way, uh, miles away from the earth, okay? Voyager 1, it, it was on the outskirts of our solar system when it paused for a moment and looked back to earth to snap a photo. The image that came back was nearly entirely blank. It was just a black picture until they zoomed in and realized that on the pinprick of a dot in that photo, it was earth. 0.12 pixels in diameter was the size of the planet that we live on. So when we're thinking about that, that picture of the stars, we're thinking about that picture of the galaxy, how big it is, the reality is four billion miles away from the earth, one of the most like advanced, high-definition, high-quality cameras ever created by mankind took a picture, and our entire planet showed up. It'd be like if you, we took this entire wall and we put the size of a bingo dot on it. And that's our earth. That's where we live. Like when you look at the vastness and the big, bigness of the earth, or the, the universe, and then you take a, a moment to realize how actually small we are, like how tiny we are, and that when you think about how long creation has been going on, and then you think about how short our life is, that question makes total sense. Like, God, who in the world are we to, that you care for us? Here's how Carl Sagan, he's an astrophysicist, he, he actually saw that picture and it inspired him to write an entire book. And, 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 and he, he kind of looked at 
the universe, the world, and, and, and the comparison of the two. And, and here's how he would answer that question. He said, the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturing, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of light, of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from anywhere else to save us from ourselves. That's the hope of someone who doesn't have a vision of a life with a living God who can hold the heavens in his hand. Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 as people without hope in God in the world. But here's the beauty that the psalmist reminds us is that God cares about us. Verse four, all week I've been meditating on. I love it in, in the Hebrew when it says, what is mankind, like, mankind that you're mindful of them? That, that word could also be translated that you remember them. Or when it says human beings that you care for them, that word could also be translated visit. It's the idea of showing up to someone's house to care for them when they can't care for themselves. So it's a beautiful picture of why we are this tiny little speck among a vast universe that the one who created the vast universe chose to know you and chose to know me. If you ever wonder if there's anyone there while you're crying and feeling lonely, is that remember God is the one who remembers you and visits you, that he's there. If you ever wonder if anyone remembers that you're doing the best you can and you're trying your hardest to follow God, but you keep falling short and you feel like the harder you work, the bigger the hole you dig, remember that God remembers you and he's visited you. He keeps your tears in a bottle. Jesus said that he will never leave us or forsake us. I love Psalm 9, just a few verses later, it says that those who know his name trust in him because he never forsakes those who seek him. There's a massive universe with galaxies and stars and solar systems, and God is looking at, at you and at me. Psalm 17, David prays, he says, God, keep me as the apple of your eye. And that's how God sees us. He, he remembers us. We're, we're tiny, puny, insignificant people that the most majestic God of all of creation cares for. And not only that, but, but here's another irony of people, is that we're lowly creatures with a high calling. It says, you made everything, you crowned them with glory and honor. That's a picture of God giving us what he has. He made us rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under our feet. Our job is to see what God did in the garden and see God's character and shine that character in the way that we work and live our lives in every area, in every aspect. Like if you've wondered like, what's my calling and what am I supposed to do and I hate my job. Have y'all heard of quiet quitting? Have you heard of that? I don't want to blame everything on the, on the youngest generation, but I'm finally old enough to do that because they've entered the workplace. Feels good. Everybody can stop talking about millennials now. We, we have the keys almost, so. All right, so. Uh, there's this thing now where, where, people, where in, people say, I, I don't feel fulfilled in my job and I don't feel like I, I, I have like, I'm living out my, my life calling and what I'm doing isn't giving me satisfaction even though it's giving you money, which is a whole different conversation. So quiet quitting is, I'm gonna do the least amount of work possible to not lose my job, but I'm, I'm gonna do just enough to where they can't fire me. And it's called quiet quitting because there's no initiative. 
Okay, there's no initiative. I believe that the people of God, that Christians, if they look at verses like this and they see the creation narrative that we are called to take what God did in the garden by taking something that was wild and wasting and turning it into something that supports life and creates opportunities for things to be beautiful, that that's the vision that we have for work. That's the vision that we've been handed. We're these tiny little creatures, but we've been given this huge calling. So if we're going into work with that mindset, whatever we're doing, whether it's full-time parenting, whether it's making coffee, whether it's working in a restaurant, whether it's a job that you feel like this is not, this is not, this is not live up to my dignity and worth, and I'm not able to do that, I would just say prove it. Do such a good job at your job that people see and say, man, uh, you, you work for something bigger than yourself. Because if it's just about the paycheck, if it's just about doing something or finding, it's the great lie of our age, which is self-actualization. Like if I find the right job, it comes out in a lot of ways. Like if I don't have a boss, if I have enough passive income, right? If I do these things, if I have enough side hustles where I'm my own boss, I won't have to answer to anybody. And then I'll be happy and I'll, and I'll like kind of find self-fulfillment. And the problem is, Bob Dylan said it well a long time ago, you're going to have to serve somebody. Right? You're going to have to serve somebody at this point. This wasn't in my notes. I'm going to focus back in here. But that's our calling. Lowly creatures with a high calling. And so, so, so that since, here's the reason, okay, let me connect. Here's the reason why, why quiet quitting exists and why we as humans feel like, like we, we should be doing work that's more dignified or more worthy or something like that. One, we, we have a low vision of the people that we're, that we're serving okay, in our jobs that we're working for and providing a service or a product for. We also have a low vision of what God's given us and what he's called us to do. And it's, and it's because, all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve, it's that great, it's that great irony where, where the serpent said, hey, actually if you do this, it's because it will make you like God and God doesn't want that to happen. And, that, and, and that's what we buy into a lot of times is, man, if I, if I don't, if I, if I stay in this job, man, it's just, I, I'm missing my opportunity to become like God. I'm missing my opportunity to become this, this like, self-reliant person that doesn't have to worry about other people or take, like, take commands from anybody else. But the irony was that Adam and Eve were already made in God's likeness. They were already given everything. They were crowned with honor and glory. God said, in, in our image, let's make them. In our likeness, let's create them. And we buy into that too. Right? We buy into that. And, and it's just that powerful reflection. If, we, if you realize that we have been handed things by God, rulers to, to rule over and govern the work of God's hands, but then we've traded it for counterfeit glory, glory that we want to be able to call our own. Dirt creatures that have been given incredible honor and glory in God's image, called into creation, and then we traded it back for dirt. What hope is there have left if, if that's what we're made to do, right? We look all the time at the wars going on, the, the oppressions, the mass shootings, the broken systems that, that keep the oppressed people continually oppressed. Humans were crowned with honor and glory, but we've lost it. We chose to live our life at the expense of other people, from the clothes we buy to the food we eat to the way we work our jobs and the vision we have for our careers. And that's why we feel lost. The, the main word that Jesus described those who don't know God as lost.
But that's why this is an Advent sermon, because we can't do it. And we, we can't do it. We can't be God. We can't have glory and honor in our own that, that exist beyond our own death. But Jesus did. And Jesus can. The one who was praised by children came as a child. The one who was betrayed and crucified by his own became one of them. The one who was seated in the heavens with the Father was laid in a manger, hung on a cross, placed in a grave, but has risen and ascended back to his rightful place. Which is why the incarnation, the, the truth of Jesus, of God coming and becoming man, is a great response to the question, well, if God is so good, why does he let bad things happen? And that's just the wrong framework and question to begin with because our answer should be, isn't it comforting to know that the God who created everything was willing to go through what we go through and actually probably more? Here's what Dorothy Sayers says. I love this quote. She says that for whatever reason, God chose to make humans as they are, limited and suffering and subject to sorrow and death. But at least he had the honesty and the courage to take some of his own medicine. Whatever game God is playing at in his creation, he's kept his own rules and he's played fair. Because God can ask nothing from man that he's not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When God was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he thought it was all worthwhile for us. So the question is, isn't, if God is good, why do bad things happen? The real question is, what kind of God is this, that even though his beloved creation turned their back on him and made a mess of his beautiful world, that he chose to become like them and suffered like he did? Hebrews 2 quotes the psalm we're looking at today, reflecting on how salvation was verified by God for us and says that even though it doesn't seem like everything is subject to, to the people of God now, but it says we can't see the fullness of God create, uh, recreating all things. It says, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while and now crowned with honor and glory because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, Psalm 8 is about Jesus. It's about Jesus coming to be the perfect human so that he could restore humanity perfectly. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are new creation. The sin-stained image of God re restored in us. And Revelation 5.13 says, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is our king. This is this Jesus who came, the might of the weak, the fighter for the oppressed, the savior of the world, and the restorer of our souls. So let's come and adore him today. And here's how we're going to respond. We have communion set out before us, but what we're going to do, we're going to take just a moment or two of silence just to, there's been a lot of words said already this morning. We're just going to take a minute or two of silence to reflect on what Jesus may be saying to us and then we're going to stand up and we're going to say a prayer of confession together before we take communion. So after we stand up, we'll recite the prayer of confession together, praying it, believing that Jesus is faithful and that if anyone confesses their sin, he's faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. 
And let me say today, if you're here and, and, you, and you've heard this good news of Jesus, and for the first time you've thought, I, I want life with Jesus. I believe that. I believe that he died to forgive me for my sins, to live forever. I would just encourage you in this moment of silence in your heart, just tell him that. And if you're here and, and taking communion is, is a beautiful reminder to come that his blood was, was spilled out for us to, to cleanse us, purify us of our sins, and to establish the new covenant that his body was broken for us. But now he's alive and well, and we take in his life as we're reminded of the good news of Jesus. So let's take a, a moment to reflect, and we'll stand and, and confess our sins together. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you proved your love for us by sending Jesus to die for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. hey, let's stand together. We're gonna pray this prayer of confession and then just as you feel led, if you need to sit back down and, and continue processing or speaking with God, feel free to do that. But as you feel led, just come up. Our elders are gonna be uh, beside the table serving the bread and the, and the juice to you. So let's, let's pray this prayer together and then take communion. Most merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and what I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. I am truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and forgive me that I may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for us. Jesus, thank you for your, for your life your sacrificial death and your resurrection, that you're seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, give us, give us a vision of life with you that's more compelling than a life without you. And give us such a strong taste of your presence and goodness that we lose an appetite for the things of the world. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray, amen.